Yo, what's up? What's good? It's another episode of Real Sankara Hours. Real Sankara Hours. Follow us at Sankara Hours on Twitter, um, where you can keep up to date with uh, our tweets and updates and all that kind of good stuff. Um, yeah, we got a couple stuff to talk. A couple things yeah, to talk about. Yeah, we got about. a lot to get through today. today <laughs> yeah. As you might Yeah, imagine. so so we'll just cut to the intro. So uh, I'm Adam Hudson. Follow me at Adam Hudson 5 on Twitter. And I'm Peter M. Gunn. Follow me at M. Gunn Peter. Um, um, and I, also, yeah, make make sure this is a free episode, but to to support independent black media like this one, um, patreon.com slash real hours. Again, patreon.com slash real hours. Because we're going to, yeah, like we, we, you know, this is our 57th episode, and this wow. is... Um, Heinz 57, yeah. baby. Yeah. But um, I, I think this is... It, I think it's really important to support podcasts like this because um, uh, a lot of the media that claims to be black media, like, you know, c- celebrity culture, breakfast club, that kind of stuff, it's just like, you know, if you're trying to understand, like, you know the nuances of conditions yeah your own conditioned nuances of black thought and black opinion like you know i I was just telling peter this before we started recording that uh i've noticed that like when it comes to like african-american culture like oftentimes people absorb it through dog shit celebrities um idiot spectacle and stuff like that like the most watered down and crappy version of african-american culture so if you're trying to get like you know you really want to understand like uh our specific condition through our voices on our own terms and yeah supporting podcasts like this real sun car hours is really important because it's really important to have media that's controlled by us um created by us and uh yeah, made by us to talk about our condition and how we see the world around us because the the other stuff doesn't it claims to speak for black people, but it really doesn't. So for us um, by yeah. us. Yep. Yeah, if if you if you remember the nineties, you should get that reference by the way. <laughs> so Yes. Oh the nineties. So, so yeah, we're going to talk about um uh well Brianna Taylor, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and some other stuff. But let's just let's talk about Brianna Taylor. Oh, the... All right, can I, I, I want to get some out out of the way in the sure. beginning. Uh, yes, just to put something on people's radar as it relates to the movement is that uh, last week uh, six organizers in Denver were arrested, uh, including four members of the Party for Socialism and Liberation, which is probably the like most active foremost i guess communist organization in the u.s right now and they were hit with multiple felonies including kidnapping uh the simultaneous kidnapping of 18 police officers i mean this is clearly like an intent this is this is like pure uh state repression this is this is, you know, the beginning of the Palmer raids uh, or, the, you know, the new Red Scare, anything like that. I mean, this is this is it, you know. So these people, 
uh, deserve everyone's support. Um, this is, it's not just enough to turn out into the streets. You also have to support the people who are making the movement happen. And especially when they get targeted by the state themselves, you know, it turns into a wonderful little feedback loop. So uh, definitely support the, uh, I guess, the Denver Four. And we'll put a link to a link to the uh, the the bail the legal the support fund and a petition and I suppose we can segue back into Brianna Taylor because it reminds me of the dipshit one of the king of all dipshits the Kentucky Attorney General who arrested yes. eighty seven people and hit them with felony charges for protesting outside his house he's back with some more brilliance yeah yeah so this so this so the Kentucky um attorney general daniel cameron um he is a, a black american politician and attorney he's he's currently the 51st attorney general of kentucky he's also the first republican elected to the kentucky ag office since 1944 um nice. he's also like there i've i've seen pictures with him with uh i think donald trump and uh he's very he's i mean a republican and obviously very much of a brown noser to the republican party establishment trump even floated him as a potential supreme court pick so i'm not surprised yeah i mean he would i mean yeah he would be right up there he'd be another clarence thomas basically (laughs) um so yeah, so he he's a Kentucky AG and he was overseeing the Breonna Taylor case. B- before um I do remember earlier, I think this is a couple months ago, so Daniel Cameron has a white wife and there are some pictures of him and his wife and the whole white family. Um and people are saying, "Oh, this is the guy who's overseeing the Breonna Taylor case." <laughs> um like you know a black man married to a white woman and the family's all white like i I think it was like probably his wife's uh extended like her immediate and extended family um i think it was like a wedding or something like that but it was yeah it was just a bunch of white people um you know like there there's a whole uh people have been saying that there's a saying that um not all skin folk are kinfolk and I, I think that's actually too mild of a phrase. And I think we should start saying race traitor because people yeah. don't say that term enough. And I think someone like Daniel Cameron is a race traitor. And particularly with his role in the handling of the Breonna Taylor case. Um, and just to be clear, like, I'm not saying that just dating a white person means you're a race traitor. Like, you know, before people get up in arms about interracial dating, because I know like people mm-hmm. <laughs> have all kinds of opinions on that. But well, my point is that like, yet. So, you know, right. <laughs> We're going to keep it going. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, so, so the verdict came, I think this was, today is september 24th so i think the verdict came on um i think it was announced was yesterday or yeah, i, was I like started yet- hearing about it yesterday yeah um, so it was yesterday yeah. Sept- yeah september 23rd so um ba- so basically the three the officers who did not shoot brianna taylor 
they were not like none of the uh, let me rephrase none of the officers were indicted for the killing of brianna taylor who was killed on march 13th 2020 none of the officers were um indicted by this is went through this went through a grand jury the grand jury did not indict any of the officers for killing brianna taylor there is only one officer brett hankinson hankinson who was indicted for three counts of Wanton endangerment because he shot into um, a, a neighbor's uh, a, the neighbor's like apartment wall basically that joined uh, um, the apartment of Brianna Taylor and their neighbors. So he was the only officer indicted by the grand jury, but officers Jonathan Mattingly, Miles Cosgrove, um, they they were not they were not um, indicted for killing Breonna Taylor. Um, so, and I, I didn't watch the video, but like just knowing what I know about Daniel Cameron and how much of a kiss ass he is for the Republican party. I think he, this is what he wanted. He wanted this, like he wanted this, this sort of verdict. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. I was, I was honestly a little bit, I don't even relieve. I just assumed no one was going to get charged with anything. Um, <laughs> yeah. No. I, that's what I figured. I had long given up hope on the idea that anyone was going to get charged with anything. So I was like, oh. And then, of course, they were going to do it in the stupidest of all possible ways. Um, I heard someone on Twitter phrase it as they only charged them for the bullets that missed. And that yeah. seems, seems about accurate. It's it's. That that's definitely one of those things where it's like if you tried to explain it to someone like this, you know, or if you put it in a book or a movie, people be like, that's fucking ridiculous, you know. One of those like satire has uh, has eclipsed real life, which I don't like to harp on, but this was definitely one of those moments. And yeah, I mean, people are pissed. I I went was actually able to go to a protest last night. And even I had to like get up and say something. Um, and I, I'm usually pretty soft spoken in those things, but it's just like, I don't know. It's hard for me to really be, it's like I've 2020. I mean, for me, for everything else that's fucking happened, it's hard for me to still have like enough energy to be angry about it. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's yeah. just like, of course, of course they're going to do some dumb shit like this. And it's just like, yeah, they're going to keep doing it, you know, so they'll kill again and then they'll, you know, come up with some other stuff and they'll pay hush money to the families and, uh, you know, the system just keeps churning on, you know, and, and it kind of doesn't matter how much we burn down is, is the real truth about it. It doesn't matter how much you burn down because that's not actually going to threaten the functioning of the system. Yeah. And speaking of the system, so th- this case was. Uh, this case was different than in terms of legality. It was yeah. different than George Floyd because this was a no knock warrant. Now, um, actually let me, I'll, I'll tell a story that sort of a more personal story that is very similar to the Breonna Taylor case, but it did not end in death. But I remember, um, so for, for those of you who, well, for listeners who are familiar you already know this, but for those of you who are maybe new or, or, or whatever, um, I mean, both Peter and I are Stanford University graduates. So I, I graduated in 20, 2010, 10 years ago um, to this year, exactly. So um, 
uh, when I was at Stanford, like for those of you who are unfamiliar with the overall um, uh, sort of geography of Stanford. So Stanford is in Palo Alto, California, which is basically Silicon Valley. So the whole tech industry, like that's where like Stanford University is sort of like the brain trust of the, the Silicon Valley, basically. It's, so it's an incubator that hands out degrees at this point. Right. Yeah. So uh, Palo Alto is very, very rich and very white. Um, but then once you cross the Highway 101, like there's an overpass and it, you, you, the overpass goes over Highway 101. Once you cross that overpass, you're in East Palo Alto, which is in a different county. So Palo and, Alto and also, is, fun fact, located on, on a map, it's located directly north of Palo Alto. But when they built yeah, the like, freeway and they wanted to ghettoize it, they changed the name to East Palo Alto. Yeah, yeah, it's like northeast of Stanford. But yeah, Peter's right. Like, it's mostly north. It's more north than east. But uh, yeah, so Palo Alto is in Santa Clara County. East Palo Alto is in San Mateo County. And it's just one freeway that divides the two of them. And East Palo Alto is mostly low income. And for a long time has been historically predominantly black. But more recently, I'd say like since like the past like 20, 30 years, well, like, yeah, I'd say like past 20 years, East Palo Alto has been predominantly Hispanic, like a, like a plurality Latino, but was still like a, a, a significant black population and also Pacific Islanders like Samoans and Tongans. Um, it's like there's like almost very little white people in East Palo Alto now it's being gentrified but back you know in the day like of previous decade yeah. it wasn't it it was the hood basic it was the hood so I used to I used to uh tutor there twice a week and I remember I had a student who I was tutoring and then one day the student didn't come to he didn't come to school like he was absent and I was like oh oh this is this is unusual and then um one of the site coordinators at the after after school program I was working at um, said that his home had been raided actually by the police. I was like, what the fuck? He said, cause so this, this coordinator lived in the same apartment as my student. And he said, um, yeah, what happened is that it was like late at night. It was like probably like 5 AM or something like that. There is a raid throughout the entire apartment complex because the cops were looking for drugs. And what I heard is that like, actually they busted into my student's apartment and that the cops like put a gun to his head. And my student at the time was like around 10 years old. So imagine like, you know, you're a 10 year old kid in an apartment and the police, the cops come and bust your door and put a gun to your head. Um, so anyway, yeah, that's why my student wasn't there. But the, what the coordinator said that, really struck me is that the cops didn't find any drugs in there and turns out well really what happens is that the cops got the wrong apartment the person they were looking for did not even live in east palo alto i remember this case this was back in 2009 so they raided a home they raided a whole fucking apartment and turns out that the person they were looking for did not even live in east palo alto um and i remember like we were talking about it at that time, this is 2009. And, you know, we were saying like, oh, this is like a you know, something where we should talk about like, uh, you know, um, 
<laughs> racial injustice and stuff like that. This was way before Black Lives Matter. And way bo- actually, also even before the new Jim Crow. Like, this stuff had been happening for a long time. So I mention that because uh, that's... So in the case of Breonna Taylor, like, there was this no-knock warrant given. And in these cases, these kinds of raids are signed, are signed off by a judge. And then the cops go do it. Usually a SWAT team, they go do it. So... There is this no-knock, basically this search warrant, and usually in these warrants, like, yeah, the police don't, um, they usually don't announce themselves, and the the law is so broad, especially since the war on drugs, that police can raid people's homes without uh, announcing themselves, and the reasoning for that, well, their reasoning is that um, they don't want, they don't want, like, let's say, potential drug dealers hiding evidence after they announce themselves knocking on the door. So the idea is to catch some catch them by surprise and make sure that they're able to get evidence. Yeah, flush, so flush cocaine down the toilet, Goodfellas style. Right, I mean, exactly. literally, like, like I'm sorry, but that is exactly like somebody fucking saw Goodfellas and then was like, mm-hmm. then yep. like became a fucking DA, and that's like how this shit develops. Is just like people watch too many movies and then they work for the government, and it's just like mm-hmm. these fucking idiots. I swear to God, how in how in any other like situation is is that like an acceptable mistake to make? Oh, wrong part, wrong apartment, guys. Whoopsies. Uh, sorry about that. Like, so so I mentioned that because this is relevant for the Breonna Taylor cases because yeah. um, they were given a warrant, and if I remember, I mean, like I need to maybe double check this, but the the home that they were looking for, it seemed like they got the wrong address. Um, yeah. I have to, I've, I've heard like, I've heard conflicting accounts about whether or not the home that the police had the warrant for, like, I've heard conflicting accounts about like, if, if Breonna Taylor's address was the right one, but putting that aside, um, what, what happened in this case, and this is where it gets fuzzy in terms of quote unquote legal stuff, because the cops said that they announced themselves they knocked and they announced themselves that's what the cops say but brianna taylor's boyfriend said he did not hear them announce themselves he didn't hear so you know when they were basically barging it like he thought he heard an intruder and so he fired off one shot and it hit a cop and then the cops fired like i think 20 rounds and like they wound up killing Breonna Taylor. But this is where in terms of legality, it gets tricky because there's a good article in the Washington post called a woman killed an officer shot and no, no one's legally responsible. So there's, there's actually like in terms of legality, there's some, there's some real conflict because on the one hand, the cops have this, this amount of discretion and authority to use force, especially in the context of no knock raids like the law gives them a lot of power to do that. But on the other hand, there's still castle doctrine laws, which is supposed to keep homeowners yeah. safe from dead from deadly force by intruders. So you have on one hand Brianna Taylor and her boyfriend, Brianna Taylor's boyfriend thinking that there are intruders coming to his home. So castle doctrine law gives him the ability to use de- deadly force against intruders. Versus the cops saying, "Hey, we have the right to, you know, raid basically serve this search warrant," and them saying, "Like this is where it gets tricky." I don't know, like it, 
the specific facts of this case, but um, you know, they said that they announced themselves, and there are some other witnesses who said who said that they heard the police announce themselves, but Brianna Taylor's boyfriend said he didn't hear them, which it actually does. It makes sense because like if it's late at night, like you know you're being waken up by like cops at your door and you don't you don't know who the hell it is. Yeah. You know, like he probably yeah. And so if it's late at night, someone's about to bust in your door and you have a gun, like hey, look, like he's he's under the castle doctrine law, like he has a right to do that. So from a so it, this is where it gets to the problem with the system itself because as fucked up as this, here's the thing. Like, what's really clear is that Breonna Taylor should never have died. Like, there's, there's, even with this warrant and how much you want to justify it legally, like, there's no reason why Breonna Taylor should be dead. And also, they didn't find any drugs in the apartment. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, it's, I don't want to say it's funny, but it reminds me of a case that happened in Columbus. Similarly, uh, Henry Green was, I, I think he was a kid who was shot by the police. And what happened was that they were doing their little like jump out boys, protect the streets, summer safety program. And so they get out of the car and they like point guns at him and they don't announce themselves and they're not dressed like cops. And so, you know, they run up on him and he starts running and then they chase him and they shoot him. And it's like, well, how is he supposed to know? You know, like, (laughs) Like part of the whole thing is that, like if some if somebody pulls up on you like that, you're gonna fucking run. Like if they right know right, that they're cops, and yeah, I'm sure that it's probably you know I know that cops will like be like police, you know, really quietly. So right, that setting. that's what I'm and thinking. Then, and it's like like this is this these are the contradictions that pile up because it's like oh yes we want to give the police this power to like be a terrorizing paramilitary force. But then when people respond to them as such, then it's like, well, you know, that's their fault. Like, it doesn't it doesn't make any it doesn't make any sense. And it's yeah, the idea basically that like all this could happen in like no law. I feel like they could have thrown fucking manslaughter at it. I mean, yeah, I I think so, too. Like they could have. They don't want they intentionally did not want to. Like, right. You can't. I'm sorry. You can't just have a situation someone ends up dead and nobody's legally responsible like that. Right. It's, it, right. It, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but like blows my mind, but so there, there, I'm glad you said that because yeah, cause I wanted to kind of parse through like what's actually considered legal in this yeah. context and what's considered legal in this context doesn't comport with any, what, what we would consider a sense of real justice or morality. Because again, like there's no reason why that, Brianna Taylor should have died. Is for in a bourgeois state. Right, exactly. And this is like this is this is why I say like this is different than the George Floyd case because that was not a no knock warrant. So and it was caught on video. So in that case, like in, in terms of a court, it, they're gonna have a little bit more more difficult time getting the cop off which is why i think in the george floyd case what they're trying to do is say he didn't die by the that fucking officer putting his his knee on his neck they're going to try to say oh there are some drugs in his system so he died that way so therefore like the cop is not like like the, the cop is not liable for his death so that's that's what i say is that like these you know bo- both these cases 
resulted in the death of innocent black people who did not need to die but this is a situation where this these are situations in which like the entire legal and judicial system finds different reasons to justify something that clearly should not have happened so in a george floyd case they're they're trying to say oh uh george floyd had like you know meth or drugs in his system and that's how he died in the case of brianna taylor well i mean especially since you have like this 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 bumfuck uh, as a, as AG handling this case, um, uh, you know, and he has more leeway because again, it's just these no knock warrants. And by the way, like since these these warrants are signed by a judge, um, if a cop is held liable for killing someone, then it also raises the stakes of the judge the, the judge signing off on the warrant. So it's not just the cops who were directly responsible. You also have to look at the judge who signed the freaking warrant. So in that case, I would say like it, the the system is like working as designed because it's like, you know, like, oh, because if the cops are held liable, then the cops are going to be like, well, what, why the fuck we were doing what the judge told us, you know? So all, all these all these pieces in, the, in this system, like they're all yeah. working, you know, they're all working in concert with each other. And there was there was no way. I hate to put it this way, like, you know, now that I look back, like trying to find justice for Breonna Taylor in this case, it, it was not going to happen through the system, which raises another question, which is um, the real change has to be structural. Like at the very minimum, there should be laws that actually ban no knock warrants. And now actually Louisville, Kentucky, a couple months ago, uh, the Louisville Metro Council um they uh they signed an ordinance called Brianna's Law, which bans no knock warrants in Louisville, Kentucky, which is like the bare minimum. But yeah. my point is that the my point is that like in that situation, what happened to Brianna Taylor like could be argued as legal, but that then it's like, okay, well then maybe this law is not justified yeah. in the first place. We should have a different law. And what yeah, what yeah. kind of a system like like what kind of a fucking society says that's okay? Like, whoopsies, right. uh, you know, accidents happen. I mean, it's that's that's the thing that I come back to because it is very easy to get bogged down in the case, in, you know, in the legalities of things, and that is by design. They do that mm-hmm. intentionally to draw you your attention away from the, uh, you know, the larger structural forces at play. I remember this <laughs> during the George Zimmerman trial where it's like, justice comes down to like how the specific prosecution team argues this specific witness or whatever. And like the entire country is waiting with bated breath on this. And it's like, it's theater, it's theater for like the American system. And I mean, it's really a fucking terrible theater at this point. You know, this isn't like the uh, courtroom dramas of, of Perry, the Perry Mason era or whatever. I don't know if any of you even know who that is. (laughs) but but um it's yeah it's i mean it's just fucking horseshit i mean the whole circumstances the gentrification project that led them to target priyana taylor's house in the first place like exactly all of of it like like this is the system this is america this is what it does and the problem is that people were able to go along with it and accept it for a certain amount of time because they were, you know, there was effective propaganda about gangs and super predators and drug dealers and all that stuff. And they could get away with it. And now 
it that stuff doesn't work anymore um and people are starting to realize wait a second um <laughs> how is this at all justifiable and you know cops being cops they don't respond to critical thinking and critical analysis very well so they just you know respond with blunt force and that just kind of makes everyone's point for them and yeah it just keeps going and going and yeah the question of justice is like (laughs) justice is i mean one of the things and i i think we mentioned this in our very first episode but something i've come back to is just like justice needs to not be this nice fuzzy concept like like if we're Mm going to talk about like no justice no peace is like needs to needs to be a phrase that has actual teeth with in it and like justice is about evening the scales like literally like that's the fucking lady with the fucking scale is the idea like the idea of justice is that somebody there is a natural balanced harmony and that somebody did something to upset the scales and so something else must be done to reset the scales and it's not supposed to be drawn out and it's not supposed to be this long fucking it's supposed to be swift and merciless that's what justice is supposed to be like straight up and it's just like you know yeah people want justice and their right to do so but the american legal system i don't think there is even an ancillary relationship to the concept of justice at this point i don't understand how you could how anyone could like at all claim that this is a system that serves to mete out justice in any way and unfortunately it's the only system we're allowed to part that we're even allowed to pretend to participate in i guess to to solve these problems even though obviously it doesn't solve them and you know this could i mean like what i want to see is that people need to be get start getting really fucking real about like what this system is what kind of a state this is uh what the legal system does and whose interest it serves to uphold um and that you need a whole new set of jurisprudence for like anything resembling a fair and decent and humane system all the way back to the fucking magna carta you have to throw it out i'm sorry i know i'm not a lawyer but like i'm sorry you have to you got to get rid of the whole fucking thing and it doesn't mean anarchy you know nothing wrong with no shade on the anarchists but it doesn't mean that it means doesn't mean no rule of law it means that there are like you have to be materialist about the legal system and that you can develop new legal precedents and all that stuff and we have to start doing that we have to start actively thinking about things that way because you just cannot get anywhere with this fucking system i don't know if this is a good that's a good thing to transition on or if you have something else to say (laughs) Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll say something else so we can transition. But, um, uh, yeah, like I mean, yeah, yeah, the whole system is 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 predicated on 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 those sorts of uh, oppressive. Um, well, it has a lot of it. Has it has oppressive ends? Let's just say that. Like, it's not geared toward actual justice in the way that like people like you and I would conceive of as justice in any sort of humane way. Um, uh, I, I do want to mention, I, I was listening to a lawyer talk about this and he, he said that, uh, that, um, <clears throat> that they probably could have given this to a regular jury and charged the officers that way. 
And he said that the grand sending it to a grand jury was most likely very, very political, which. Yeah, that's uh, why I, they I, always I, do grand juries. Right. Which I, I think makes a lot of sense because there's a saying that a grand jury can indict a ham, a ham sandwich. So like, you know, in this situation, like I, I have a hard time believing that a grand jury could not indict one of the officers in in terms of in in relation to the death of Breonna Taylor. I have a hard time that believing that the grand jury could not indict one of the officers who killed her. But I think this was just, yeah, I, I think, and that's, you know, this, this Daniel Cameron asshole, like, I think this is all just, just theater, um, particularly on his end. I think he, he strikes me as someone who is clearly looking for a career, a greater career in Republican oh. party politics. And that's also why I said earlier that, you know, because people are saying uh, in relation to Daniel Cameron, like not all skin folk or kin folk. I think that's too mild of a phrase. I think people like him are actual race traitors and we should just call them that and we should deal with them as such. Like, I mean, yeah, I'll also say like, I think this dude's a coon. Um, he's a coon <laughs> and he's a he's a race traitor. And I think, you know, uh, like, look, I, I think sometimes black people like. Uh, we're not honest about the fact that there are actual traitors in our own community. And I think sometimes we're a little bit too forgiving of people like that. Um, and I think, you know, like we got to stop being so fucking forgiving and just call people mm -hmm. for what they are and don't sugarcoat things because, you know, I see all these, you know, miniature like wars on Twitter and so on black Twitter and shit, like the gender wars, the diaspora wars, the colorism debate, all this stuff. Like it, it's, it's, it gets repeated ad nauseum and it's like, okay, we can talk all about this stuff. And it, it oftentimes it never goes anywhere. That's why I get tired of them. But I do think that um, what those debates often miss is that there are, there are actual traitors in the black community. Look, our podcast is named after Thomas Sankara. One of his friends betrayed him and killed his him. Childhood best friend, right? All Blaze biggest betrayals in all of history, really. Right. Yeah. So in this case, someone like Daniel Cameron is like Blaze Campare. Like there yeah. are like if you look at the if you look at the like Black history globally, not just African American history, but globally, I think one consistent theme you can find is that some of the biggest obstacles to black liberation and progress are traitors within the black Compr community. Yeah. Compradors, Compr traitors. Yeah. People. Yeah. So I think, I think, yeah, uh, Daniel Cameron, I think Comprador applies to them, but I do think that like, I think we don't say the term race traitor enough. And I think we should mm -hmm. start calling people race traitors and just call them out and just l learn how to identify that. Like these specific people based on their behavior, um, is actually detrimental to the collective survival and liberation of black people. And they are working for people who are our enemies and forces that are enemies that are enemies of black people and black liberation. And yeah, like there are going to be black people um, who are more vested in protecting the status quo that oppresses black people than they are about the collective well-being and liberation of black people. So Daniel Cameron is one of those people. He's a fucking traitor and just call him out like that. Like the term 
all skiff folk and kinfolk like that's just you're you're sort of beating around the bush he's a fucking mm. traitor and i think like yeah like and, and because because someone like him uh is a traitor like that's why we could not get justice for brianna taylor so in addition to the fact that the the way the laws are set up are set up in a way that protects the police in this kind of situation another important actor in this situation is someone like daniel cameron who is a freaking traitor and there are look like there are black people in positions of power you know black people who are da's and judges and i mean look at um i'll never forget the the image of uh so the botham jean case which happened two years ago oh. so that white yeah the white woman amber geiger who went into his apartment thinking it was hers and shot him dead and then she got you know she got sentenced she got you know the the yeah the that was came yeah and, the, one of the few times the police officer actually got convicted for killing someone right and and this behavior that I'm going to mention is similar to Daniel Cameron. So the black judge, a black woman, went up and hugged her and started stroking her hair and comforting her. It's like, so, so she just killed an innocent man in his own fucking home. And the judge is going to just extend some compassion that she does not deserve. Because I, I, I've never seen it. Judges don't like, they don't, do they hug like gang members? You know, no. when they're sentenced to a verdict or bank robbers, they don't hug any murderers or mass murderers or serial, serial, serial killers. So, you know, this is the kind of behavior that we have to be honest about. And it's, it's beyond just like, you know, representation politics doesn't work for black people, which is true. It doesn't like there are black people who actively work against the interest and survival of black people. And I just we have to call them out as such. Um, yeah, anyway. I mean, yeah, I want to. Yeah, it's like imagine if you live in a literal colony, and it's like, yeah, one of your people makes their way up to colonial administrator, like because you know their native people were always the natives, quote unquote, were always in colonial administrations. Like those, that's not representation. You're not being represented in the system because they have someone who's better at administrating the colonial system because they're from that same background. Like that's not representation, not being represented in that system. The system's still oppressing you. It's just yeah. that they have become more skilled at finding the methods of doing so. And someone like Daniel Cameron, you know, all the architects of mass incarceration up to Kamala Harris, all of them, they're colonial administrators. They're not they're not representing any they're not not even on a like a figurative level, like they're representing black people in the system. Like, no, they're colonial administrators. That's why they get put in those jobs, because they will carry out the work of this still colonized state system, you know, because this is still a colonized nation. Like, that's that's just basically the reality of the situation. This was theorized, you know, many decades ago by people like Kwame Ture. And if anything, the situation has just gotten worse. It hasn't gotten better. So... Like, that's what it is. That's why we have SWAT teams. That's why we have paramilitary police forces. That's why we have no-knock warrants. That's why we have gang injunctions. That's why we have, uh, you know, pretextual traffic stops, which, uh, you know, one of which uh, a recently departed, uh, I guess, mm-hmm. hip-hop kingpin slash great Supreme trans- Court justice. Yes. Oh, it's great transition. One. Yeah, uh, great transition. Voted, there you go. See, for. we're uh, we're getting better at these transitions. Yes. So yeah. 
So, so every, yeah, every, liberals have been losing their minds. You know, even before yesterday, they they were Apoplectic. they were uh, on one, as people might say, over the death of their of their hero. You know, the notorious. Yeah. Oh God, I we'll get into that later. But yes, Ruth Bader Ginsburg in something yeah. everyone saw coming. Um, you know, exited the material plane of existence, you know, two months before an election, just to just to spice things up. Yeah. Yeah. As if 2020 could not get any better. I mean, this is this is a great ride. But yeah, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who had been battling cancer for years, um, well before the Obama administration. Yeah, she died of cancer at age 87. Um, my late grandmother who passed away um, in 2015. Uh, rest in peace. Um, wait, I don't want to say my grandmother's full name, but <laughs> no, Dor- <laughs> my grandmother, uh, my maternal grandmother, she, she passed away in 2015 and she was 89 years old, just one month shy of her 90th birthday. So, you know, when I heard the age that Ginsburg died, I thought, Oh wow. She was, close to my grandmother's age when my grandmother died um so yeah ruth bader ginsburg died so that means there's an open seat in the supreme court which raises the stakes of um of this election and uh i mean mitch mcconnell in 2016 when it came time to appointing um merrick garland he said oh let's wait until after the election then when ginsburg died he's like okay we're gonna appoint someone before the election and uh, liberals were like oh my god that's hypocrisy but it's like you know what no republicans don't care about yeah, hypocrisy I, and rules and all that shit something everyone could have seen coming a mile away it's like that's why they do that's why they're republicans that's why they have the whole thing is to do something like this of course they're gonna do it why wouldn't they do it it's, yeah. I, I don't know if people are really like actually shocked that they're going to do it, um, but it's just like liberals because because MSNBC's got them on the drip. They got and they know how to, you know, feed feed them piece by piece and get them like right to the edge. And so they're like, I can't believe they're it's always like, can you believe what the Republicans are doing? It's like, yes, yes, you can. Yes. They're <laughs> right. Republicans. That's what they do. I totally can. It's, yeah. Then, oh no, but this one, this really takes like no, this is all I mean, it's all staged fighting anyway, and it's all just like, yeah, they're gonna do the same thing they've been doing the whole time. Like yeah. past behavior is a good indicator of future behavior. That's just like a human thing. So I don't understand why people would at all be like, I can't believe they would do this. They promised that they would. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, so she look. This was totally avoidable because everybody knew that she was sick and dying, and a lot of liberals. Like I mean, Ginsburg has become, I think, a liberal folk hero, and a lot of people wanted Ginsburg to live because she, if she lived long enough, she can survive Trump and well, da, 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 well, well, that that blew up, that went that up was, in flames. That, that but silly. yeah, but like here's the thing: is um. She had every chance to retire during the Obama years from January of 2009 to December of 2014, which is when the Republicans took over the Senate. She could have easily retired anytime around there, stepped down, 
so that Obama, when the Democrats had control of the Senate, he could have appointed someone to replace her. And we wouldn't be in the situation where um, there is this greater sense of urgency to fight, to either pack the court or wherever to make sure that Trump doesn't Trump and McConnell don't get their whatever far right gargoyle they want to put on the Supreme court. Like this is totally avoidable, but no Ginsburg didn't want to do it because just, you know, like her own ego. Yeah. I think from what I, yeah, because from what I, I remember reading, she herself didn't want to step down. No, because she was like, you got the cushiest job on the fucking planet. Why would you? Why would you leave it? Except that Republicans know how to discipline their members, so they're like Kennedy. You got to step down. Like they, like they were able. They can force justices to retire at the right time. Democrats don't have that kind of coordination or something. No Democrat could be like Ruth. Come on, this isn't about you because that's not how they think. That's not. That's not how Democrats operate. They only discover that when it's time to suppress the left. Otherwise, when it's actually mm-hmm. time to fight, they're just, you know, free floating spirits or whatever. They can't, it does like strategy and coordination is just lost on them. So, of course, they wouldn't be able to make her do that. Uh, but, you know, and, and the people are like, oh, she's going to just hang on for four years. I, and the thing that kind of gets me is that it makes me wonder exactly like they were concealing a lot about probably how bad her cancer was. Because they just made it oh, like, yeah. oh, no, she just goes in a couple times a week, gets like radiation. She's fine. Then she's back on the bench. And it's like, is she, you know, because she had just been on the bench. Right. So then it makes me wonder, like, exactly how much, you know, Supreme Court justicing was she doing, you know, in the past five years? And then also, like, how much Supreme Court justicing, justicing do any of these people do? Or does their, you know, I'm sure their staff does basically all the work for them. I'm sure they don't actually write their own opinions. So, like, I think right. all you literally do is just, like, show up in the, you know, in the robe and you listen to the arguments and then, like, everyone else writes the opinions for you. It's the cushiest fucking job in the world. Of course you want it. You know, <laughs> you don't want to do anything else. But, yeah, the yeah the implications of it are, I mean, they're not good in the sense of, like, yeah, there's going to be more reactionaries on the court which, of course, is nothing new. The Supreme Court is a reactionary body. It's inherently anti-democratic. Yeah. That is the point mm-hmm. of it. That is the point. Yeah. It is the final ruling of bourgeois propriety and morality and legality. And, you know, when every other part of the system that has to pretend to be responsive to the people or whatever is not working, then the Supreme Court, with all of its, you know, I don't know, mystique or whatever, can weigh in and settle the matter is the idea. Uh, but you know, it's, I mean, what it does is it upholds the system. Like, I, I don't know. I, I could never get on the RBG train just cause it was like, how am I supposed to worship a body that gave us <laughs> Dred Scott and Pussy versus Ferguson and, right, so, and somehow right. all the fucking broad city crowd, um, the people, you know, like, let, let's just be honest. It was white women who, you know, appropriated the imagery of Biggie Smalls to turn, you know, some tiny old white Jewish lady into, you know, a hip hop icon, like literally the same imagery. That was a move by like petty bourgeois white women who it never occurred to them, like what the reality of the Supreme Court means, you know, especially for for black people. Yes, for black people. 
Um, uh, and, and and I'm glad I'm glad you mentioned yeah because there's this mis- there's this kind of hagiography about the Supreme Court in the liberal imagination because they they've kind of rewritten the history of the Supreme Court to make it seem like that it's always been this effective institution for progressive change when the reality is like the kinds of d- decisions that uh are you know considered progressive particularly in the liberal imagination really happened like since the 50s so yeah it was, it was just education. it was just a brief period and that was like it's not like right. earl warren and any of those people were like oh suddenly like civil rights leaders they just understood that th- these were things that like the other channels of political action like people were getting nowhere and they understood on a global level that some form of civil rights reform had to happen because it was right. like the best propaganda the Soviet Union had at the time. And so right. and so they had the court had to weigh in. And if you go well, if you subscribe, look at that little plug, uh, you can get our the episode where we talk about Harry Haywood's uh, piece. And he mentions Brown versus Board of Education. He just says, like, yeah, they had to do it. Like it was getting to yeah. a point where they had to do something. And that's the thing that I think I don't know if it's a reassurance or whatever, but I think so that people can think clearly about this stuff is that the Supreme Court's not going to, even if they get, you know, some fucking gargoyle, if they get, you know, uh, I don't know, Laura Ingram or something on the Supreme <laughs> Court, just like just one of the worst people imaginable. Or like Maria Bartiromo or something. Yeah, yeah. I I don't have a whole lot of names of, of terrible. Well, they, you still have to be a woman. Trump promised that. But my point is that even if you get the like worst gargoyles up there, they still under like it's the Supreme Court's own political body, its own political agency, and their goal is to uphold the system, not tear it down. So they're not going to issue a bunch of rulings all at once that are going to you know cause people to go crazy. Like it's well, going to be a drip, it, and it's going to respond it, to the actual situation. And, and most of most of the Supreme Court's decisions throughout its history have been pretty conservative and pro business. Yeah, yes. like like that's most mo- that's what I mean about that. This is hagiography because, like most since since the Supreme Court's inception, most of its decisions and where it's landed has largely been like very very conservative because, you know, the laws are written by you know Congress and, and other legislative bodies, and those those body those laws have you know, corporate and ruling class influence in terms of how they're crafted. And then the Supreme Court is basically just giving it sort of um, the the highest court of the land stamp of approval in terms of how it interprets a law and how it, how the how those laws fit within the per- parameters of what's considered constitutional. But in terms of like advancements for civil rights and civil liberties, that that be, that was a result of real global and social movement pressure that where the Supreme court had no choice, but to go in the, in that direction. So for, for example, with Brown v. Board of education, which, which was, um, I think it was, uh, 1954 is an early fifties. Um, yeah. So in that case, desegregation was already happening well into the fifties, even like the first, the first institution in the United States that got desegregated, was actually the U.S. military. Now, I think we did a couple episodes. I think it was um, the the Empire is Eating Itself, and I talked about Port Chicago, which is very close to where I live. There is a Port Chicago massacre where there is this big explosion that killed mostly African-American sailors, and there is this mutiny 
because black sailors were protesting the segregation and mistreatment that they were experiencing in, in the Navy and the U.S. military. So as a result of that protest, the Navy decided to desegregate. Then after World War II, the U.S. military des- desegregated because, like, you know, you have all these black soldiers who come back after World War II, defeat the Nazis, and they're coming back home and they're saying, like, okay, how we, we just spent all of our fucking blood f- fighting Nazis um, in Germany and we're coming back and being treated like shit in America. So it created this pressure to f- for the U.S. to be like, okay, we're going to have to at least settle this thing called the Negro question, the Negro question and grant uh, yeah. civil rights gains to black people. And that happened without, with without the rewarding any of the communists involved or any right. like, or engaging in like the labor questions which were at the time equally if not more important than you know the questions of legal civil rights right well they no they weren't gonna they obviously no. i mean by that point the cold war had already kicked in so they weren't going to but my point is that <laughs> you know the the social and global pressures that were happening at the time made it so that the united states was going to do desegregation anyway so that meant that the supreme court had to step in and just say okay when it comes to the question of segregation in schools then comes Brown v. Board of Education ruling that segregation is unconstitutional. But my point is that p- people think like I think that the liberal rewriting of history, like the way they paint it is that Brown v. Board happened and then boom, there was desegregation. Then he had the Civil Rights Act. But really, it started even earlier with, um, uh, yeah, like real decades long organizing. Uh, of of black yeah. people, especially black laborers in the South, and then there is World War II and protests and mutinies by blacks black sailors and soldiers. So all this stuff was building up. So this idea that the the Supreme Court is like on the cutting edge of progressive change, like that's just yeah, it's yeah. just hagiography and like liberals projecting this progressive image on the Supreme Court that never really existed. It's always been a conservative. Yeah, very pro corporate institution, but it had to bend a certain way because of the social forces that were happening. Um, so yeah, like the the progressive decisions that the Supreme Court did enact or or, or or you know decided on, it was because of specific things that are going on in the country. I mean, same with Roe v. Wade and the yeah advancements yeah of that women's right. rights that was that was that was like the consolation prize because the Equal Rights Amendment didn't get passed. Was, right. Was, yeah. Was really kind of what Roe v. Wade was was about, you know. Though I'm sure someone's going to completely correct me and embarrass me for saying that, but I think it. I think it's important to understand that. Yeah. The uh, the you know the right kind of wants to under or they put for. I mean, they're not idiots, but their public facing message about the Supreme Court is that it is just like this completely disinterested like you know, analytical body that is just trying to interpret, you know, what the constitution says and how it says it. And then liberals want to understand the Supreme Court as a moral force that they, that, you know, using the constitution as a moral document, they, the Supreme Court weighs in on moral questions, you know, in the form of legal disputes to provide clarity and, you know, move society forward and neither of those things are true it's a political body who you know that has its own kind of cloistered away but still very significant amount of power whose purpose is to uphold 
the bourgeois state. And that's what this is, that America is the first bourgeois state, really, actually. And it has a system that is 250 years old. People say America is a young country, you know, assuming you even consider it a country. But its system is actually very old. And it doesn't really make sense for the 21st century. You know, governments rise and fall, systems rise and fall way more frequently throughout history than this bullshit, which is carried on for a very long time. And that's not a good thing. Like, like the reason we like have all these arguments and everyone loses their mind over an 87 year old dying of cancer, like in a way that everyone saw coming is because the detritus of over 240 years of all this stuff has piled up and it's made like actual motion impossible. And people say, oh, that's the point. Like, you don't want a government that can do too much. And it's like, that doesn't make any fucking sense. Like, we either, you know, one side or the other, right? Like, you're going to want the government to be able, like, it's in the state's interest to be able to function. And so the idea that, oh, no, what we want is a dysfunctional state is, is absurd. It's just people covering for themselves. So... I like like there's you know I've heard people on the left be like how do we engage the Supreme Court I mean you don't really have to it's not like it's not a democratic body so your opinion on it or how you approach it doesn't matter because it's not responsive to the people that's the whole fucking point I I mean and the other the other arguments I've heard I mean on the left in terms of engaging the Supreme Court is either packing the court with more judges or abolishing the Supreme Court which you know um, yes let's abolish uh, the Supreme Court I didn't know that was on the table but yeah, I've heard people say that like, well, I mean, it's I mean, I'm I'm not like uh, super vested um, in that. It's, it's just and, and again, uh, lefties love to throw around the word abolish with no understanding of what it actually entails. So. That that's why that's why I'm not like super vested in this idea of abolishing the sure, Supreme Court. Why it's not? Like, well, I'll yeah. say it. <laughs> right. <laughs> but my point, like, um, kind of going back to the whole notorious rbg i I just want to say the only rbg i respect and recognize and acknowledge is red black green was only this red black green garvey unia colors pan-african colors also whenever uh, i hear dead press the second album revolutionary yeah right those that those that's the only rbg we respect around the these parts on real sun car hours but um it's just it's just like uh, the the white liberal appropriation of african-american vernacular english like notorious rbg for like it's like i mean you know what that is such a white liberal thing to do it's that the is whitest white liberal, liberal thing to do it is like that is a white liberal in a nutshell and it's like yeah that that is who that's who they are is is th- of course like these kinds of broad city people would do that like of course of course they would. And it's the same people who are having these uh they're creating these um like memes or whatever of like, oh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is chilling in heaven with Chadwick Boseman. It's like, oh God. It, yeah. it, it's just, it's these people never quit, do they? They just they, don't they, they can't. They don't can't stop, they, won't stop, don't even know how to stop. No, they don't. It's just like, no, this that's just like part of me is mad but part of me is also like this is who they are it's sort of like you almost like you know you can't get mad at a rattlesnake for rattling 
It's like, oh my god, why is that rattlesnake rattling and bite? It's like, well, it's a rattlesnake. What do you expect? Yeah. This is like the white liberals. Like, why are these white liberals like doing a notorious RPG? Well, that's who they are. That's just yeah. like you're never going, like you're never going to change them. It's just you know, the best you can do is just stay the fuck away from them. That's basically, yeah. especially if you're doing any kind of like real black organizing that has any sort of progressive or radical teeth. Like the best you can do is just just stay away from them or like if you have to work with them then just work with them but don't don't trust them you know so that's just um that's where i'm at it's just like yeah like 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 that kind of stuff is just i mean yeah like god they gotta shut the fuck up with it but it's also like yeah yeah this is this is what they do that's 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 just them in a nutshell the whitest form of liberalism is um well second second to pretending you're a different race to get a professor job in Africa. Oh, America. oh, That's... right. Yeah, so yeah, this, yeah. The, the yeah. second thing is trying to turn a Supreme Court justice into some sort of rap icon or something. I trying to imbue them with some sort of hip hop swag, which is like, no, I'm sorry, she doesn't have swag. Ruth Bader Ginsburg did not have swag. I'm just gonna say it on the podcast. Go ahead and cancel me. If you made yeah. it an hour uh, in, then you're probably then you probably are here for and speaking of her not having any swag uh i mean a couple of her opinions that she's oh, oh right too. yeah we also brought receipts i forgot <laughs> yeah uh before we yeah like so i'll i'll mention this this has to do with um native american sovereignty uh so there was the cheryl versus oneida indian nation case um in 2005 uh michael leroy Oberg. Uh, wrote a really good piece that uh, bre- breaks this down. Um, so I'll I'll just uh, I'll read a couple I'll read a couple paragraphs to, to lay this out because I think he explains it pretty well. So the Oneida in- Indian Nation had purchased on the free market lands within the small city of Cheryl, New York, in 1997 and 1998. The lands in question were once part of the Oneidas. A uh, 300,000 acre reservation. The state of New York had acquired the lands early in the 19th century in a series of in a series transactions that clearly violated the terms of the Federal Indian Trade and Intercourse Acts, which stated that purchases of Indian land without a federal commissioner present and without subsequent ratification by the Senate were null and void and of no effect. Which yeah makes sense. With cash from their gaming operations, the Oneidas purchased some of the lands back. They considered the lands as part of their original reservation and exercising their rights as a sovereign nation. They refused to pay taxes to the city of Cheryl. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Makes total sense. I mean, it's their land. Um, The town began foreclosure proceedings against the Oneidas. The federal district court and then the circuit court ruled in the Oneidas' favor. The rulings indeed were entirely unsurprising. But then they, then came the Supreme Court and the notorious RBG. Writing for the eight to one majority, she shot the Oneidas down. And this is what this is what she said. Given the longstanding non-Indian character of the area and its inhabitants, the regulatory authority cost, constantly exercised by New York State and its counties and towns and the Oneidas long delay in seeking judicial relief against parties other than the United States, we hold that the tribe cannot unilaterally revive its ancient sovereignty in whole or in part over the parcels at issue. Ancient! Ancient! 
ancients. I mean, it, it's, that's it, not true legally, right? They're still here, like yeah, they're, and they're still sovereign nations. It's not an ancient right. thing, right? Only ancient um, thing was you. Oh, right. <laughs> and so, she, yeah, the decision drew upon the um, discovery doctrine. Um, yeah, which they, uh, um, the, yes, I'm not the, doc- legal the doctrine of discovery goes back basically to the 1500s. I think it was like issued by the king of Spain or something like that. Like it's like before the United States existed. And it basically is just like, yeah, well, we found it and we wrote it down on a piece of paper that we found the land. So it's ours. And it's used and it's still used as legal precedent in deciding cases about indigenous sovereignty. And there's yeah, there's like a move to get it like not count, but it still counts as legal precedent. So someone like Ruth Bader Ginsburg can cite it, you know, to rule against tribal sovereignty, despite the fact that like you know, every indigenous nation is supposed to be recognized as a sovereign nation and allowed to conduct their affairs as such. But unfortunately, you know, and this, but this is the point is that you, the fact that you can still use something like the doctrine of discovery as a legal precedent shows you like what the actual legal tradition of this whole fucking system is. Right. And I want to I want to mention a little bit more in this article because he I think explains he explains some things I think are really important. He says uh, once an Indian tribe lost its lands, even if those lands were obtained illegally in a manner that violated federal law. And even when the tribe reacquired those lands from willing sellers on the open market, Ginsburg and her colleagues colleagues on the court held that there was no longer any remedy open to the Indians. The only way to revive sovereignty over lost lands was to have Congress take those lands into trust. The very existence of the Oneida Indian nation was not enough to do this. Tribal sovereignty, the court implied, was a quaint and antiquated notion not worthy of its consideration. The passage of time had made history irrelevant. Let that one sink in for a minute. And keep in mind, at issue in Cheryl was not an Indian nation's exercise of criminal jurisdiction over non-Indians. The tribes had lost that power in 1978. Nor were we uh, talking about the efforts of a Native community to regulate or tax the activities of non-Indians on Indian lands. That, too, the Supreme Court had held was out of bounds. No. In Cheryl, the in, the issue was whether the Oneida Indian Nation would pay taxes to the city of Cheryl on lands the nation owned that stood within the bounds of his historic reservation and that they originally had lost through illegal transactions. Where is the d- disruption? So this is basically like, I mean, this is pretty egregious because basically it's saying like, okay, uh, these indigenous nations are sovereign, but sovereign in name only. Basically, that's basically yeah. what they're saying that like, okay, we're going to recognize you as a sovereign nation, but only in name. Like there's no, like all the power that they have to actually exercise sovereignty in, in the, in, in what that term actually means has been gutted from native Americans. And so basically like what Ruth Bader Ginsburg did in writing for the, the majority in this case was basically saying, yeah, like your ancient sovereignty is, is like, just take it out of here yeah. basically that's basically was just spitting in their face um and it's also like yeah like this is land that is technically theirs and that they lost through illegality and the supreme court's like yeah it doesn't fucking matter who cares 
So this, yeah. I mean, this actually, this, this, this goes into what I was saying that much of the Supreme Court's decisions are very conservative, pro corporate, and like pro. In this case, pro pro colonial. Like it basically, yeah. like in this case, I think the Supreme Court is just reinforcing the colonial relations between the United States and and indig- indigenous nations within the United States. So. Yeah. Yeah, like the in you know so so th- this is this is a this is a decision um, that she wrote the opinion two- for. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> so she's yeah, like, she I want opinion. this one. Uh, yeah, I there's also, and this especially I find egregious, and because you know now because people try to make Ruth Bader Ginsburg into some sort of hip hop hero is that and Michelle Alexander talks about these cases in the New Jim Crow. There were two cases that kind of provided some of the legal architecture for the system of mass incarceration. One is Wren versus United States. The other is United States versus Armstrong. Wren versus United States was basically about like someone got, you know, someone in, uh, in Washington, DC got pulled over, you know, for like a traffic violation, then got their car searched. Um, and you know, got, arrested with drugs and they, they were trying to argue that you know that that like being like it does it's a violation of the fourth amendment to be stopped for a traffic stop and you know as a pretext which is to say that like you are stopping them for this but you're just claiming you're stopping them for the uh for you know a busted taillight or outdated registration and then you know you tear the car apart um and that, like, that's not illegal. And this was a unanimous decision in 1996. And it essentially legalized racial profiling uh, is is the way it's interpreted because it basically gives the police the right to pull anyone over, you know, for any, for the mildest of reasons and then do whatever they want to them once they're pulled over. Um, and, and yes, Ruth Bader Ginsburg wholeheartedly supported this along with whatever other liberal justices were on the court at the time, uh, Souter, Stephen Breyer. Uh, and then, yes. And in United States versus Armstrong also, I believe it was a DC case. The issue was that basically the defense of someone who had also gotten, yeah, uh, crack charges was pointing out that literally every single person who had been, that the prosecution had arrested for a crack was black. And they were basically saying this was uh, proof of racial profiling. And they wanted the records of the prosecution to be released into the court. And this was, you know, and th- and this like was approved by the, the Ninth Circuit and it made it all the way up to Supreme Court. And they basically said no. Um, and that was an eight to one decision, you know, which, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg also happily voted for both of those cases. And you can, and Michelle Alexander talks more about it in the new Jim Crow. These were, these were big cases for preserving the system of mass incarceration of police impunity of all this, all that whole architecture that developed in the eighties and nineties, um, you know, in the wake of the war on drugs and the long COINTELPRO to yeah the supreme court understood what its function was and whose interests it ultimately served and it ruled accordingly because that's what it does and 
what doesn't matter with the liberal or conservative breakdown because like here's the here's the other thing i have to ask liberals is like you also know that like rbg and who whoever the fuck else is on there they always talk about she always talked about how great friends she was with scalia right and it's like i'm sorry how is this your warrior you know your warrior (laughs) queen who's like great friends with like one of the most disgusting people on the planet you know at the time and it's just like yes because they are because they don't see like 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 the people like people on the supreme court like they don't see the political divides as like real, you know, as things that they are committed to. They just pretend they just rule certain ways so they get ingratiated with this particular party so that they can move upwards in their career so they can end up on the Supreme Court. It's that they, mm-hmm. their, their politics don't matter, which is the whole point because it's supposed to be an independent judiciary. And you can't have it both ways. You people can't have it both yeah. ways. You can't have a quote unquote yeah. independent judiciary. Then you get to go rail at Venezuela or whoever because their judiciary is not quote unquote independent enough. So now we have to overthrow them. And then also be like, well, the Supreme Court is broken down between liberals and conservatives. And that's why you have to <laughs> vote for Democrats. Like you can't have it both ways. So you people got to make up your mind. Either this isn't an independent judiciary, which means the whole system is fucking stupid, or like it is, in which case. There's no point in worrying about the Supreme Court because it's not political. You can't have it both ways. So figure that one out for yourselves, liberals. And, yeah, yeah, and, that's, and, and that's just probably like, all I got for tonight. <laughs> yeah, and just to like kind of clarify in terms of who who is who is currently on a Supreme Court right now. So, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, he was appointed by Bush in 2005. Um, he's he's conservative. Then there's Clarence Thomas, um, probably one probably yeah. biggest house negro on the planet um Stephen Breyer Stephen yeah. Bri- uh, Clarence Thomas conservative Stephen Breyer liberal Samuel Alito um he was also appointed by George Bush in 2005 um conservative Sonia Sotomayor uh liberal appointed by Obama um Elena Kagan also another liberal appointed by Obama Neil Gorsuch who was um appointed by uh Trump and then uh, the infamous Brett Kavanaugh, and, and appointed by Trump in 2018. So, pretty much. So previously, when Ginsburg was on the court, the breakdown was, you know, four liberal and five conservative. Now it's there's five conservative and three liberals. So that means, um, you know, Democrats and liberals want another quote unquote liberal to, to even things out, but it would still be a conservative majority. Six, three would just be like, just sort of a, 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 uh, even greater conservative majority. I think the thing is, is uh Trump doesn't trust John chief justice, John Roberts, because John Roberts has not always well, yeah. leaned in the d- direction that Trump wants. But Peter, Peter, you're right. Like, I think that's really important because you can't, you can't say, that the Supreme Court is an independent judiciary, and it's important to have an ind- independent judiciary for, you know, the f- for having rulings that have any sort of legitimacy. But then say like, okay, well, we need to um, get some sort of liberal on a Supreme Court because, yeah, like when it comes like the, the judges, like they're not as th- that political. I mean, it depends, but I do think that there is some legitimate cause for concern in terms of who uh, Trump's potential nominees are. Uh, one of them 
I think her name is uh, Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, like her and a couple other potential nominees. Um, basically, like when it comes to the question of Brown v. Board, they've refused to say that it was the correct one in terms of questioning. Nice. So, I mean, yeah. So it's like, I mean, having someone who a judge with even more far right conservative politics on a Supreme Court that's not good that's not desirable but at the same time it's like yeah like you know if we're if we're going to say that the supreme court is an independent judiciary and that having an independent judiciary is important then fretting over like i, w- I wouldn't say fretting but like investing so much time in worrying about the politics of individual judges yeah, it does conflict with that. But, um, you know, I mean, at the same time, it's like, I mean, the best way to look at a judge, I guess, if you're trying to evaluate is looking at like the decisions they've they've decided on and like where they where they land on key questions. So, um, yeah, if, if Trump's going to appoint someone who basically thinks that Brown v. Board is is is, you know, bullshit, then like, OK, yeah, that's a legitimate cause for concern, because if they get on the bench, then there's a worry that they could undo some of those um, decisions. But at the same time, if you're looking at the entire history of the Supreme court, well, in a lot of ways, like that's still within the status quo of the Supreme court in terms of it's overall, like quote unquote body politic. It's always been a conservative institution, yeah. but um, you know, so it's, yeah, like again, it's, it's hagiography. Like the, Supreme Court has never been this it's, it's, vehicle for progressive change. It only it only has let has dis- made progressive decisions in response to you know real social and global pressures and also changes in um, right. actual legislation. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, I mean, so the real the real fight's going to be, I think, politically is going to is still going to be in the legislative body. It's not. Yeah going to be so much in the but, judicial but, system but what because... the what the supreme court is great for is politics as spectacle and politics as television right. and so because i remember it was i remember i don't remember which case it was i just remember like this msnbc correspondent being like it might have i don't remember which one it was but it was it was definitely some sort of social issue and it's like okay everyone is ready to carry out the fight but the fight right now is in the court so that's where it is right now and i was like okay well what the fuck is everyone else supposed to do just sit around and wait for well, the lawyers to figure it out I, i'll i'll say this i want to add this um you know in theory having an independent judiciary is good but i don't think the supreme court would was ever that i think the supreme court has always been a political institution well yeah under the guise of 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 constitutionality and legality so the supreme court has always been its political body so i think like you know the liberals who say it's important to have a liberal another liberal on the court but then want to say oh we need an independent judiciary just just, should just say openly that the supreme court is a political body and because i think like deep down the republicans know that and that's why they're fighting tooth and nail to get another far right conservative, because I think deep down Republicans understand that, yeah, the Supreme Court has always been a conservative institution yeah. and it should remain that way. And what they're going to try to do is get someone on a Supreme Court to undo the previous progressive decisions of prior courts. So I think like where we're at right now, we should just be honest about what the Supreme Court actually is, which is 
it's an inherently conservative institution and it's political. Yeah, it's always and been anti-democratic. So just right, exactly anti-democratic and inherently political. And when it comes to politics, it's for the for most of its history, it's sided with you know conservatism and yeah. preserving the preserving the system as as is. So in that respect, it is a political institution, and that's why there are political fights over appointments because the Supreme Court is political. So I think, you know, with, with Ginsburg dying and then th- this question of Trump uh, getting a far-right judge, which kind of ties into um, the election, because I think what he's really trying to do, because I've, I've been hearing commentary about this, and I think it's accurate that, like, Trump is worried, legitimately worried about whether or not he'll win the election because things are just are so close. Like it's, it's like in terms of polls, like Biden is technically ahead, but not that far from the margin of error. So he's, he's ahead the be, same I, amount Hillary was four years ago. Right. Yeah. So this is the thing is like, I, you know, Trump, because he's egotistical, um, it, if there's issues with the ballots, especially since a lot of states are go, going with mail-in ballots because of the pandemic, um, the issue is that in terms of counting all those mail-in ballots, in terms of the amount of time it takes to count the, all of them, um, the full results will most likely come back, will come in after the election day. But, um, so once you count all those ballots, uh, whether or not Trump will be reelected is is still an open question. I know there's a lot of leftists who say who think that Trump will be reelected. I think that's possible, but it's nothing is really certain at this point. But I think um, what Trump is trying to do, and he's signaled this that like he he wants someone on the Supreme Court that if if there's some kind of uh, uncertainty with the results of the election and let's say it does potentially go to the supreme court like it did with al gore and george uh, w bush in 2000 trump will want someone on the supreme court who will side with him so that is important to keep in mind but it goes back to my point that the supreme court is a political institution like yeah, yeah like its mandate is to decide on constitutional questions but it still has a political ideology that underpins it as an institution. And we shouldn't be naive about that. So in this instance, the Republicans, I think the Republicans, like they've always wanted the Supreme Court to lean conservative because they 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 want to go for Roe v. Wade and overturn that. They want to overturn all these other progressive decisions. Like they're, they're gunning for the Supreme Court. So, um, uh, yeah, yeah, that's something that's something to pay attention to in terms of like how the the Supreme Court decision will relate to this this election. Yeah, I mean that's that's certain, and I'm sure MSNBC will be there to break it to break down all the minutia. Um, and it, but it is important. I don't want to downplay it in the sense of like this is how the system operates. This is how Republicans get power and exercise it, and this is how they rig elections. Like this is. This is the this yeah. is how it happens. Mm-hmm. People have right. people think right. there's some sort of like, you know, mystical. I don't know, like like some sort, you know, like Latin American style, let's say or whatever, you know. And it's like mm-hmm. no, like no, we are more advanced because we're the United States, and so we do things in a more advanced way because we're an advanced capitalist country. So we don't need the primitive methods of ballot stuffing or whatever. 
and this is how they do it. They know how to, they can, that's one of the ways that they do it. So yeah, I mean, yes, he, he's obviously going to, he's not going to want some, he's not going to nominate someone who's going to be like, no. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, they're going to, they're going to push someone through, I'm sure. And uh, I honestly don't think, I feel like going back to the Supreme Court is the, is not the move they're going to take, but I don't know what they're going to do. I mean, we're going to find yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this is basically like some sort of uh, yeah. You you want you contingency want plan. Place. They've got all their right. they got to get all their pieces in place, and then they just got to right. see how it breaks. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, we're we're getting you know this is about an hour and twenty. I want to mention this is just this will be a last item to talk about, just as a palate cleanser. Um, given all the other mm-hmm. uh, sort of doomer stuff we've been talking about, uh, Godfrey and Lord Jamar have cut ties with dj vlad (laughs) um so all right maybe some of you some of y'all know who so godfrey um is a comedian lord jamar on i love the 90s all the time that's what i know him from yeah um and lord jamar was with brand nubian right um so he yeah so they have been frequent guests on dj vlad's vlad tv so dj vlad Vlad is a uh, white dude who's a DJ, but he's known for um, interviewing a lot of rappers and black celebrities and black athletes. He's a white dude with a hood pass, basically. That's that's yes. what he's... And he, and he asks them like very probing, sometimes borderline incriminating questions. So that's why right. people call yeah. him Officer Vlad. Right, yeah. And he, he a lot of his content in his interviews he is very much obsessed with uh gang culture and criminal elements in the black community and i i think a lot of his stuff um promotes very negative stereotypes about uh, specifically african black americans i think he promotes a lot of very negative and harmful stereotypes about black americans by just focusing on um the worst elements of hood culture and gang culture and stuff like that and yeah as peter said like he'll often ask very incriminating questions that makes him sound like a cop um but he's really deep like he he is uh like he is very much an an adventurer into the black urban hood lifestyle so um godfrey and lord jamar like they were among his guests who drew a lot of people in including other people that vlad wound up interviewing because as lord jamar over the years keep appear kept appearing as a guest on vlad's program other rappers saw that as a sign of validation like oh maybe i should go on vlad's uh program because lord jamar's on it so lord jamar has a lot of clout in that respect and then God- godfrey came on and then they kind of you know brought more people in i know i like i i used to watch vlad a lot be- mostly for lord jamar and godfrey interviews because those are among the most interesting interviews um what happened is that apparently dj vlad uh c- cut a quote of um lewis farrakhan and i guess put it out of context and Lord Jamar and Godfrey were pretty pissed off about pissed off with Vlad about that. And even Godfrey said like, he wasn't like, um, like super, super pro Farrakhan, but he felt that it was just unfair to 
take his quote out of context and misinterpret it, uh, his his words. And basically, Lord Jamar and Godfrey were basically saying, like, look, like this is a white dude who has a lot of leeway in the black community, and it's not cool to give him this sort of pass into our house to do something like this because like Louis Farrakhan, like white people really hype him up as like, oh, the the crowd of Right, right. Whenever they want to like both the, sides he, racism, they have to bring up Farrakhan for some reason. Right. Yeah, like Farrakhan is is he hasn't really been relevant in the black community since the nineties, but you know, he's sort of like I don't want to say an elder, but I do think that like it is unfair to take his quotes out of context. Like it's a sign of like that just disrespect to black culture and black intellectual tradition, even though like, I mean, I have plenty of issues with Louis Farrakhan, especially as it relates to the assassination of Malcolm X, which I think that's, that would definitely, that would definitely make for another episode, but um, yeah, not going into that right now. Right. Yeah. That's a long one. Uh, But Lord Jamar and Goffrey were basically saying, look, you should apologize for taking Farrakhan's quotes, like his words out of context. And they said, if you don't apologize, then, we're no longer going to go to go on your show anymore. And DJ Vlad refused to apologize. Tried to be slick with and it. God. Mm-hmm. And then Godfrey and Lord Jamar said, okay, well, we're not going on your, on your show anymore. And they said that on, they said it on um, their own uh, YouTube channel called the Yada. I mean, um, that's, that's actually, I like, I like listening to Lord Jamar, um, Lord Jamar and them on, on that. So, but uh, you know, I'm not the I'm not the biggest Farrakhan fan, and there are times I disagree with Lord Jamar, but I think this is a good move to do well, to yeah. just say like, well, it's a, I think it's a good indicator because it's like yeah, people like Vlad, they they get too comfortable and they kind of yes. try to act like you, you know Lawrence of the Lawrence of Arabia style, or and and they think like they like that they're no longer a visitor, and it's important. And also that, like, you know, people aren't going to stand up for themselves. And I don't I think he alongside probably a lot of white people are understanding that, like, people are not they're not putting up with bullshit these days. Like, Mm -hmm. like, like, this is not the time to be doing dumb shit. If you're if you know, if you if you are making money off of black culture in some way, do not try and do anything stupid right now, because, yes, your revenue stream is uh, is very uh contentious right now so you know just mm-hmm. do it yeah do it yeah look one of my life mottos is no one is ever as slick as they think they are and this is a good <laughs> representation of that yeah yeah i i respect godfrey and lord jamar for for doing that as a result i stopped subscribing to vlad's youtube channel because again the main reason why uh, i subscribed to vlad at least as on youtube is because of godfrey and lord jamar and um, Lily, um, from formerly known, for, what was formerly called the Vanguard Army podcast, uh, when when you were absent, Peter, she she was yeah. on um, a bonus episode with with me, and uh, we actually did talk about a uh, uh, a DJ Vlad uh, clip. So you know, I thought it'd be relevant for this podcast because we <laughs> we, we did mention DJ Vlad, and I mean, Lily and I both had our critiques of Vlad's opinions, but. Um, 
you know, I think this is this is a good this is a good step to like just tell, particularly DJ Vlad, like, hey, look, like you know, you're whatever ghetto past you thought you had, like, you no, know, like we we can give it can be taken away. Uh, it could be taken. Let's say, yeah, it could be taken away very very easily. And also, like, I think black people have to stop giving out so many hood passes and cookout invites. Like, I'm sick of the whole fucking cookout invite. Like, who came up with that? I want to know. Do you know who? who uh, I don't know. Right. Pro- probably someone who's like a diversity consultant at some Fortune 500 company who thinks like yeah. the epitome of resisting white supremacy is talking about how white people don't season their chicken or something like that. Right. Right. Any, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Um, let's let's probably let's let's uh, get this. I don't I don't know. Sorry. My brain's fried. <laughs> I've had to move yeah. rooms this week. So <laughs> um, this has uh. not been fun. But yes let's uh, let's get out of here yeah so anyway that that's it for our episode and um yeah uh don't support dj vlad um if you're a subscriber if you watch his shit uh just don't support him um but anyway that's it for this episode of you know we talked about uh brianna taylor ruth bader ginsburg uh mostly that and that's it so um also yeah uh support the denver four as well um we mentioned earlier at the at the top of the episode um yeah that's it so anyway we're gonna sign out keep the faith and stay dangerous later see ya